Coming up with security now, Leo's out, but Steve is here to give us the updates on Java, the new Firefox, and find out how you're making Facebook a lot of money and more. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 404, recorded May 15th, 2013, How Facebook Monetizes. Security Now is brought to you by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the Internet the way it should be, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to proxpn.com twit and use the code SN20. And by Carbonite. Automatically, continually back up your computer files to the cloud whenever your computer's connected to the Internet. For only $59 a year, try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SECURITY now. You'll get two bonus months with purchase. And by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to AudiblePodcast.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that helps you stay safe online and Leo's obviously not in. I'm Aya Zaktar, and thankfully, I'm joined by the star of security now, the mustachioed master of security, Steve Gibson. <laughs> hey, Aya, it's great to be with you today on episode 404, 404. The, the, the missing security now, the not found page of but security this now. this episode is findable anyway. It's not going to be full yeah. we got a full episode coming up. I'm a little fried. I'm going to get that right out. I'm going to tell people right uh, in the beginning, this is an hour, what, five of broadcasting for me. So thankfully, Steve's here, and he's the real expert about everything. We've got so many things to talk about, a lot of news coming up. But first, you know, I kind of miss Leo's shining face. Maybe we can, we can bring him back for a second. Maybe he can tell us a word from a sponsor. Thanks, Ayaz. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ayaz. Hello, everybody. I, I just thought I'd pop in here to tell you about our sponsor, ProXPN. If you heard a couple of weeks back, Steve singing their praises. It is a virtual private network, a VPN that uses OpenVPN standard, makes it very easy. And it's a great way to protect your privacy. We all know more than ever that online privacy is an issue with governments and ISPs wanting to control what you do, what you can see, keeping a record. With the six strikes law now, you really might want to be using something like ProXPN. It hides your Internet activity from snoops at your Internet service provider. It also protects you when you're using open Wi-Fi access spots or hotel uh, Internet access where everybody you're on a common network. It protects you because your traffic, your activity is encrypted from your computer to the ProXPN servers and then out onto the public Internet. It also supports PTP, PBTP, which uh, while not as good as OpenVPN, it is sometimes a requirement on some smartphones. Uh, but that means you don't have to add any additional software. You could, it just works. So bypass Internet filtering, blocked websites... Uh, protect yourself against your ISP snooping and the six-strike rule. You can bypass geographical uh, restrictions because they have servers worldwide, including the U.S., U.K., Asia, and more. ProXPN, they've got great software for Windows and Mac, which gives you even more control. You don't need it, 
It's not required, but if you use it, you can say, hey, this goes through the encrypted channel, this does not. For instance, your web surfing can be all protected, uh, but everything else goes normally. Pro XPN also works with your iOS or Android device, allowing to use your data plan or public corporate Wi-Fi with complete and total privacy on the go. No app required. And of course, they got great world-class customer support. Now, I want you to try it out. Go to proxpn.com slash twit for more information and to sign up. ProXPN premium accounts normally cost you $9.95 a month. Or if you want to buy an entire year, you get a discount $74.95. However, we've got a special offer. Use the code SN20, SN20, and you'll receive 20% off, not for the first year, but for the lifetime of your account. This is a great deal. Ends up being less than 5 bucks a month when you buy yearly for complete VPN protection, unlimited. And, of course, if you're not satisfied, cancel within seven days, get a full refund. ProXPN.com slash twit. Use the offer code SN20 to get 20% off for life. ProXPN.com slash twit. And we thank them so much for their support of security now. Now back to Stephen Iaz, guys. <laughs> it seemed like he was in the thank office behind you. me. But thank you, Leo. Yes. Quiet. When, in fact, we know that he's somewhere probably mingling with the Google I.O. people, or maybe he's in his car. He's probably back swearing that he got another Pixel. Petaluma. Like they gave away Google, <laughs> the, the uh, Google gave away Pixels to every developer at the conference. So I, I know Leo's not a huge fan of the Pixel, at least that's what I've been reading. So he gets another one. So maybe he's fuming about that. Uh, but we'll see how that goes. So we've well, got you some... Guys I'm sure there are enough people hanging around uh, the Twit Cottage, or not? it's not a cottage anymore, is it? The Twit... What do you guys, what's called? The Brick Twit House. Studios. The, yeah, the Twit Brick House. That's right. The, somebody will be able to make great use of the Pixel. Well, yeah, that's what was going on in today's other news. We should be talking about security news because this is security okay. now. Okay, that's true. So what would the second Tuesday of the month be without Microsoft patches? In fact, it would be a, probably an impossible second Tuesday of the month without Microsoft patches. We've Ever since they started doing this, they've never missed a second Tuesday of the month. And so... Certainly, that's no difference now. Now, we talked last week about a brand new, just-discovered, zero-day vulnerability that affected only version 8 of Internet Explorer. Not 6 and 7, not 9 and 10, only 8. So, Microsoft released, I think it was later that day, later Wednesday, they released a hot fix that sort of mitigated the concern, but the good news is they were able to get a patch, a full patch out for that by today. So they fixed 33 vulnerabilities yesterday on the on patch Tuesday uh, for May, uh, including this zero-day flaw. Uh, they did it actually in two pieces. They probably already had a cumulative update for IE in the pipeline, tested and ready. So the, the zero-day flaw patch exists in a second update and well and probably it, it, it makes sense that it's just for ie8 so you only need that one for for if you're using internet explorer 8 on your on your system otherwise they fixed some problems in windows in my in microsoft publisher word visio and windows essentials so sort of your standard uh run-of-the-mill uh patch tuesday not as dramatic as some that we've seen one thing that i got a kick out of though was our friend brian krebs who covered this patch Tuesday, as he always does, 
sort of he, on his website, he put an, an he posted an open sort of side note to Microsoft. He, he just sort of he said, "Dear Microsoft, please stop asking people to install Silverlight every time they visit a Microsoft.com property." I realize that Silverlight is a Microsoft product, but it really is not needed to view information about security updates. In keeping with the principle of reducing the attack surface of an operating system, you should not be foisting additional software on visitors who are coming to you for information on how to fix bugs and vulnerabilities in Microsoft products that they already have installed. So I got, <laughs> I thought that way. It's a very good point, you know, because I have had Microsoft saying, oh, you know, like on, on a system that's recently set up or one that you're you're curating carefully that doesn't have Silverlight installed. It's like, ah, no, thank you. Well, Don't as, that. As Thrincy in the chat room is saying, you do need Silverlight for Netflix. And because you're going to be waiting a long time for those patches to download, you might want to watch a movie <laughs> at the same time. So you should that's get Silverlight as soon as you can. Yep. So also, as has been happening, uh, synchronized with Microsoft, Adobe updated Flash, Reader, and Acrobat. Uh, no real big news there. Flash fixes 13 vulnerabilities. Of course, IE10 and Chrome will both update themselves automatically. You may need to restart the browser in order to get them to 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 go and bring themselves current, uh, d- depending. But basically, just uh, Flash, Reader, and, and Acrobat updated from Adobe. Um, I didn't check to see after I restarted Firefox that it had updated at 21, but I'm checking now, and yep, sure enough, 21.0 just came out. Um, This fixed a couple problems. There was a a privilege escalation that Mozilla had been worrying about in their own maintenance service, which version 21 of Firefox fixes, and then they also closed three critical holes, a couple which were remotely exploitable. So not huge and dramatic, but Mozilla's Microsoft, uh, Firefox now moves to version 21. So you're telling me to, to you should, I should really update my Firefox 3 installation that's been sitting around because I haven't touched it since <laughs> Firefox 3. I just leave it there in my, in my app applications folder because you, know, you might never know when you need it. But now it's up to 21. Okay, did, your, that just went right your, past me. Your, your go-to browser is what then? Chrome. I use Chrome oh, you're, okay. almost you're exclusively. Chrome. Almost. Yeah, you you and Leo are both Chrome people. I'm still, I love the the add-ons that are available for Firefox, and I'm a and I, I'm a major tab user, and I can, you know, I just like, I think I have like 87 tabs open right now. I got and, so and, burned by Firefox and Mozilla constantly saying, yeah, we'll fix that memory leak problem, we'll fix that, we'll fix that, we'll fix that. And after a while, I just kind of got, yeah, sure, you're going to fix that. That's totally going to be fine. I'm not going to have my well, system overheating because Firefox or Mozilla promised me again. I guess uh, the boy cried wolf, or Firefox in this yeah, case, has happened. Yeah, I understand that. But they They really did... Make an improvement in 17 was where they, they, they began to beta their, their improved memory management in 14. 17, they, I think they pretty much nailed it. And frankly, I was just saying the other day that Google uh, Chrome really has become a hog of memory. I mean, you, you launch Chrome and it's, it's just, if you watch your memory consumption, it just squats down on a huge chunk of RAM. So I'm, I, I imagine they'll get to it. I, I like Chrome a lot. But I do wish they were, you know, continuing to fight back against that tendency to to bloat it. So those those are, however, you know, Google, um, Google, Google's Chrome and Firefox are my two favorite browsers. So in the news, I guess it was late last week. There was some interesting coverage about 
a report which was circulating of law enforcement having a seven-week wait for Apple to crack iPhone encryption. Now, that surprised everybody because we were assuming, I think it was when we went to iOS 4, that we that we knew that they deliberately took advantage of, wait a minute, maybe it's iPhone 4. I'm getting my iOSs and my iPhones confused. But remember, remember that they added hardware encryption in the in 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 the in the phone hardware itself which allows them then to do real time decryption without any software overhead and at that point um, and we have covered this in detail explicitly in the past it's possible to get your iPhone to be encrypted so it raised some concern and the problem is we don't really know in exact detail you know Apple has the technology. It's not completely open how it functions. We know that they have the keys to our storage in iCloud. That's, that's you know, that, that, that's well known. The presumption is, though, that a well-encrypted iPhone is uncrackable. Then we hear that there's a seven-week waiting list. So it's, it's to me, it seems that it's probably a brute force attack on the hardware. Certainly Apple has full knowledge and access to the phone, you know, hardware technology. So maybe there's a waiting list because it takes that long to brute force um, access to the phone. Or that is it takes long enough that, that there's a huge demand from law enforcement to, to get into suspects or or captured iPhones and and you know find out what they've got inside but you know it's a little bit of a concern that you know that Apple is there although Apple as other companies do are complying with government requests for information so uh, I guess if Apple has a way of cracking it then they'll say well you know we'll do what we can but it may take a while and when I looked this morning I saw the news that Syria had disappeared from the internet once again. Two weeks ago, they dropped off for uh, almost a day. And I think they, they had just come back online when we were doing the podcast two weeks ago. Uh, last I heard, they had disappeared again. We heard two weeks ago that it was some sort of a fiber optic cable problem in Syria. It's like, well, okay, you know, Leo wasn't buying that story. He felt it was clear that it was Syrian government had some some political reason for taking them off the net. Um, we, we don't know. But they're gone again, or at least they were uh, as of uh, 7 a.m. Pacific time this morning, uh, 10 a.m. back on the East Coast. I'm, I'm sorry, I missed it. Did, did, was there any official explanation? Was it, was it uh, a cable again, or is this supposed to be government inter- intervention once again? I, I haven't checked for the last few hours, but they just, all we know is that that Google services disappeared, mm-hmm. uh, social networking services disappeared. There's something called, I think it's a Google service called Voice to Tweet or Speak to Tweet or something, where which like provides a means, maybe using phone technology. I think it might have been Speak to Tweet. Uh, cell phone technology is then translated into tweets in order to like still allow some access to to uh, Twitter, presumably from inside. 
a, a, a region which does not have Internet access. I did not have a chance to, to pursue that. But that apparently is something that Google did two weeks ago and, and, and was going to be doing again. So who, who knows if they're still off or, and how long? According to Miola uh, in the chat room, uh, he gave us a link saying that Syrian uh, Internet is back up. Uh, ah. Routes to Syrian networks have been restored at 18.26 Damascus time. Outage duration, 8 hours and 25 minutes. And there's some charts over at rensis.com slash blog. Okay. Well, good. Thank you for that in the chat room. Yep. So we're back. They're, or, or they are back. Okay. Now, this was very disturbing. Um, the, the H security guys, the, the H online, a well-known UK-based security firm that we refer to from time to time, did some research to verify a report that they picked up on. The report was from someone saying that links they had sent, that is this reporter, had sent to someone else were visited by Microsoft. So so in order to verify that, uh, the high security group, they... They created some secure links and they went to the trouble of embedding logon information in the links, which they then sent through Skype chat to another user while monitoring the servers that those links referred to. And sure enough, a short time after that, uh, an IP registered to Microsoft in Redmond, accessed the resources behind those, and they were HTTPS secured links. So this is, this is sad. Uh, the, the, apparently the, uh, a, you know, they asked Microsoft what was going on. Microsoft says, well, read the terms and conditions. We reserve the right to scan Skype chat for spam. And, you know, so apparently that's how they were justifying following links that that were not related to spam activity, not phishing, just, you know, private HTTPS links sent in a Skype chat. Some server on Microsoft followed them and pulled the resources. And in this case... It 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 in it, it the link contained all of the 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 URL tail information required to authenticate a user for a secure logon, which Microsoft's query accomplished. So that's disturbing. You know that Is there says any positive <laughs> look at this. I mean, Microsoft's <laughs> they're trying to uh, get away from spam and Skype, but if they're reading everything, that seems like there's. I think there should be a huge. There would be a huge backlash based on oh my this God, information being out there. Yes, they're following links that pro- that people are sending to each other over Skype conversations. So, first of all, we 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 know that it is you know this notion. Skype originally had extremely good security. I mean, it was it was amazingly strong, and we know that it was also point to point. There was there was no. There was no ability to intercept Skype connections because it was direct user to user. Sometimes when NAT traversal could not be accomplished, then you'd have to have a, 
a, a third-party relay, and that's what my, the Skype technology called it, a relay server, so that both of those users could, could access the relay, and it would relay the, the traffic. But that was typically just another user. So what we now see is that, at least in the, in, in the case of chatting, Microsoft is monitoring and reading everyone's chats and going so far as to follow links which are to have nothing to do with Microsoft, nothing to do with spam or phishing. They're just going there. That's it sounds horrific. I mean, the thing really, is really, really wrong. Wow, this is I mean, since Microsoft bought Skype, the yeah. infrastructure has changed so that we have a lot of this information going through Microsoft at this point. I wonder if a lot of this has to do with compliance with other countries that white love to eavesdrop when uh-huh. it comes to uh, Skype communications. And we've always heard the story of BlackBerry when it comes to uh, countries constantly trying to get them to right. unencrypt things. And they're like, we can't do that. We just don't have right. the ability. Because the BlackBerry technology was well designed and it was phone, it was point to point. It was phone to phone encryption. And only those phones knew how to decrypt the, the session that they'd negotiated with each other. But uh, obviously Microsoft has broken that and our we just um, so so the you know the the takeaway here is first of all this is important to know and anyone should consider Skype chats are now being surveilled 100% by Microsoft so you know <laughs> you, you just can't use them for anything you want to be secure uh there are some secure chat technologies and people have been asking me about them i think now that it's going to it's it's time to go check those out and do some uh, some TNO analysis. As you know, it's an acronym we coined here: trust no one to verify that uh, they are secure alternatives. Because certainly for chatting, at least uh, we need it. I mean, we you know you and I are operating over Skype right now. It's a great service, the best that 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 Twit has found for for solidly connecting people in a in a reliable fashion. Uh, but it certainly is no longer private. Well, it's a good thing we're live streaming as well. I mean, I don't think we have an expectation <laughs> of privacy necessarily, but that, no. the chats, you, you, that just sounds crazy that that's happening. Uh, and and verified. I mean, the, the H Online is a great group, and they have verified this is going on. So, And, in fact, uh, you could probably Google the, uh, their piece because it was titled Skype with Care, Microsoft is Reading Everything You Write. And they verified it. Um, Speaking of expectations of privacy, uh, the New Yorker magazine just brought online an anonymous dead drop system. Um, The Verge covered this story. um, And it was it's interesting because just in the news also was the the Associated Press's outrage over the, the admission by the Department of Justice. Actually, they. The, the DOJ confessed to this. They sent a letter to the AP saying that they had been for several months, and I saw the word 20, and I saw a number 100 in different reports. So spying on at least 20 Associated Press reporters' telephone calls for several months last year, which really upset the Associated Press. You can imagine, apparently, this was regarded as a really overbroad uh, surveillance of their organization. And, and Lord knows what information was discussed, not relevant to any 
con you know to any investigation that the Department of Justice had because they just threw this broad. Um, they got a judge to issue the warrant, which allowed them then to secretly tap the phones of these AP reporters. But anyway, so it was, it was interesting that just while this was happening, the New Yorker opens what they call Strongbox. Strongbox is a Tor-based, secure, encrypted, anonymous dead drop facility, which allows people to share messages and files anonymously with writers and editors of the New Yorker magazine. It was actually designed by Aaron Schwartz, who we'll all remember, unfortunately, mm -hmm. committed suicide. Um, and in fact, it was ready to roll out late last year, but Aaron's death put a sort of a, a pall on the project and, and halted it. Um, it's based on Dead Drop, which is open and free on GitHub. So... Although, although developers and users are cautioned that it's not turnkey at this point, it does take someone who really understands the system to set it up. It's based on three servers, two to do the work, and a third one that monitors in real time the operating security of the other two. And essentially, somebody that wants to, to send something with absolute security, encryption, and guaranteed anonymity, um, uses a client which which accesses the Tor system to an, to to hide their identity. When they when they essentially create this drop, they are given a random string, which is a which is their ID that allows them to then identify themselves as the submitter of the, of the information completely anonymously. So all the, all the New Yorker sees is this information which, which they receive. They get it encrypted, and it, it is then decrypted on a... They get it as an encrypted file, and it is then decrypted on another machine not connected to any network. So, I mean, it's it's... They really designed this the security. Um, uh, Aaron used some 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 very security savvy people to design a provably secure, provably anonymous means of of sending information to the New Yorker. And of course, this solves the problem of, for example, here that the Associated Press is worried about. Of you know, I mean, of course, they're the AP, as would any news organization, be concerned that. That the government spying on them means that people will be afraid to have conversations with their reporters for fear that, you know, they're talking to, to Big Brother and Uncle Sam at the same time. So this, so this system allows people to, to report things to the New Yorker knowing that they're remaining anonymous. So things so, would remain absolutely secure that if somebody uh, blew the whistle on a company or some other uh, activity, that yes. no matter what – uh, even if, if there was spying going on, you would never be able to, or the government would never be able to backtrack to the originator. There's, yes, um, and the New York and oh, and the New Yorker is able to have follow-on conversations that are also anonymous, all using this this ID, which is the only means of someone identifying themselves. So they're you know they're completely off the grid. Uh, and, and, and and as you say, able to provide information and the New Yorker 
can't give the government anything it doesn't have. And it would have no idea uh, who this was, who, who submitted the information. So, you know, it's interesting. You know, the, the problem is we, there is very strong technology available now. So this is the kind of reaction that you would expect to see as a consequence of, of you know, a, what people perceive as abuse by the government of their surveillance powers under the Patriot Act. It's like, okay, fine. If, if that's what's going to happen, we can roll out more technology to protect people who still want to be able to, to have a relationship with us and not worry about being compromised. Is this something that uh, a number of other organizations are going to uh, adopt as well, or is this just a New Yorker for now? I'll bet you we see everybody with with a, with a system like this. It'll get it'll get proven. I mean, it is you know it'll be you know now the New Yorker has a means of soliciting this information in a way that people with who want to submit things know is safe for them to do so. So so that's a competitive advantage as a news reporting agency. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Other organizations are going to say, hey, we want one, too. And there it is. It's called Dead Drop. It's on GitHub. You need some expertise to set it up, but the work is done. So I bet you we're going to see all news organizations at some point of any size that have this that offer this kind of anonymous submission of, of files and information. OK, now get a load of this. Oracle is changing their Java version numbering scheme, I kid you not, because there are too many updates to count using their current system. Wait, say, wait, say, <laughs> so that, wait, wait a second. There are too many updates? So instead there of just are, trying to there, keep track there, of that, it's changed yes. the numbering system? Yeah, well, the, the, the problem was they had some scheme with the way they were allocating version numbers. And... The, the the need to to increase the version numbers for updates over it sort of swamped the plan that they had for the way they were going to number things so they've had to change their updating scheme because they're patching java so often so the new in the new system the they they have so-called planned feature updates which will now jump by 20s. So it'll go like, you know, uh, J, you know, Java uh, version 7, update 20. Then it'll go to 40. Then it'll go to 60. And then their plan is that what they call critical patch updates or CPUs, those will be numbered by by fives in between. So 25, uh, 30, 35, and then... 40 would be the next major plan feature updates. And that then, that gives them room within the critical patch updates to have 6, 7, 8, 9 before they have a 10. So they've literally, they've, they've expanded the, the way that they number Java versions specifically to accommodate the fact that they're having to update it so often. So at some so, point they just like, have to call it Java Infinity, don't they? Because yeah. it's going to constantly be updated. Just say latest, yes or no. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too to listen to some of the questions at Google I/O about the you know the the tension that now unfortunately exists with Java and, and Android on the Google side and Oracle's you know management of Java over on their side. So 
that's uh, but you know apparently no one's that concerned about it. They're sure they're 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 convinced it's going to work itself out one way or the other. So the chairman was making jokes of making it like an Apple style thing. Like they just stopped calling it. It's not iPad three or iPad four. They just call it the new Java. <laughs> the, yes, the current Java. <laughs> and don't worry about any of those other ones. So yesterday on what's today? The day is the fifteenth. So That's it right. would have been May fourteenth. Uh, there was some sad news. Over in Bitcoin world, we've been following Bitcoinage a lot recently just because it's been interesting and and fun. Um, Ars Technica reported that that, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, our DHS, is alleging that Mt. Gox, which is the leading Bitcoin exchange, is an unlicensed money exchanger dealing in cryptocurrency. Um, and what happened was Mt. Gox had an account over at, uh, do you pronounce it Diwala? Diwala? D-W-O-L-L-A. Diwala. Just Diwala. Yeah. Which is a, a major, cur- which is a licensed currency exchange that allows, you know, it's sort of like a PayPal sort of organization that allows people to to move money back and forth between each other using Diwala accounts that look very much like phone numbers. Um, and, and that's your account number. Well, Mt. Gox had an account with Diwala and a bunch of money there. And the Department of Homeland Security has seized all of Mt. Gox's money that was resident at Douala. In the warrant, a special agent with, with something called Homeland Security Investigations, HSI, stated that there's probable cause to believe Mt. Gox is engaged in money transmitting, which is an official term, uh, without a license. That's a crime so says this agent, punishable by a fine or up to five years in prison. The warrant goes on to demand that Dewala hand over the keys to account number 812-649-1010, which is owned by a Mt. Gox subsidiary. And uh, quoting from the warrant, it says, Mt. Gox acts as a digital currency exchange where customers open accounts and fund their respective accounts with fiat currency, which is then exchanged into cryptocurrency by Mt. Gox. The cryptocurrency is known as Bitcoin. Fiat currency simply refers to any money that a government has declared to be legal tender. The exchange is bidirectional, and allows customers to also exchange bitcoins back into fiat currency and then withdraw those funds. The exchange of fiat currency and bitcoins incurs a floating flat fee, I'm sorry, a floating rate fee charged by Mt. Gox and is determined by the customer's aggregate amount of funds exchanged on a monthly basis. So that was from the warrant. Uh, it remains to be seen what happens next. Um, I was curious, and so I went over to see what had happened to Bitcoin price. Um, it did get pushed down from it's, – it's been floating around about $120 in the last few days. It, it was pushed down, depressed to about 105 but has since rebounded nearly back to where it was. It's about $115 per Bitcoin now. So, uh, you know, it didn't it – didn't, 
it, it wasn't considered a, a devastating blow to the Bitcoin. Uh, and we'll just have to have to you know see how this plays out and how it goes. Yeah, we were talking about this on uh, today's Tech News Today earlier this morning, yeah. and uh, we we're talking about the the reach of the Department uh, Department of Homeland Security if they can even go out and do this, and why they bothered to to go this far to go to the uh, to is it, it actually going against Mount Gox? Why they're going after the exchanger instead of the actual person? Just how hard it is to find out data on anybody who owns a Bitcoin. You have to go well, all yeah. the way to this uh, to the to the exchanger. Well, and you'd think this would be more of a Treasury Department thing rather than Department of Homeland Security. And I thought that the Treasury Department just said that that this was legal, but it must have been that it's legal from it. I think I think that the, the the paper, as I as I recall, it was about a month and a half ago that, and that that's one of the things that surged the Bitcoin the way it did was. Treasury said, specifically said, that this kind of exchange was legal. Maybe, however, it was legal for users and not for money transmitters. And they're saying that Mt. Gox is a money transmitter. Uh, and, and I do know that, that there was an agent who deliberately created evidence that DHS went after. That is, somebody set up an account with, Bit, with Mt. Gox... Uh, and an agent set up an account with Dewalla and then did move funds back and forth in order to generate a trail of evidence that was then used in order to issue this warrant and and stomp on Mount Gox. And I mean, but obviously they're also confiscating funds, which is a concern. So anyway, we'll, ha we'll have our eye on this and uh, see how it uh, plays out. Um, last week... In pure miscellany, I uh, and actually was following from a uh, a tweet. Uh, I talked about how amazing hard drive magnets were. The, the those are the magnets that are in all hard drives now, which are the head positioning magnets. There's a there's in all hard drives. There's a a servo arm or a, a, a head mounting arm which is is pivoted on a bearing the back side of that has a coil which is energized and the coil the magnetic field from the coil pushes against the magnetic field being generated by these magnets in order to minimize the amount of electrical power needed you want the strongest fixed magnetic field possible so as you can imagine no expense has been spared by drive manufacturers creating the strongest magnets they know how to make. And oh my goodness. I mean, and, and so what I was saying last week was anybody decommissioning a hard drive, it's worth taking the, the lid off and taking it apart just for, an, even if you only do it once, to experiment with and play with the magnets that are inside. But you need to be careful because they are super strong. So today we have a link uh, and I forgot to tweet this. I, I, I will tweet it as soon as we're done here so people can find it because it's... Oh, wait, I did tweet it. I already tweeted it uh, yesterday. So it's in, you know, it's uh, twitter.com slash SGGRC. You can find the link in my Twitter feed or you can also go to that archive of my tweets, which is archived by... Um, Security Now episode, and that's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash S-G-G-R-C. 
So you can easily go back to Security Now episode 404 to find the the tweet just before that. Anyway, the point is that <laughs> the question was, how many hard drive magnets are required to stick a young boy to the side of a steel shipping container? And the answer is 20. 20. And we have a picture of some guy who has his son stuck to a shipping container. Um, apparently, there are under his the, the son's clothes, his pants and his jacket uh, are 20 hard drive magnets. And then dad lifted his son up and pressed him against the shipping container. And there he stayed. So either this is the greatest dad in the world... Because he has a kid that wants to do an adventure. Or this is the worst dad in the world who is sticking Actually, his kid to boxes, giant if, metal if boxes. You, yes. If you look through the guy's blog, it's clear that he's the greatest dad in the world. Yeah, he, he's done some other things. Like he's had like all kinds of fun with cardboard boxes. And he's like he's had his kids building forts and cutting holes and drawing on the outside and sticking their faces through the holes and all kinds of fun stuff. So this is, this is definitely a neat dad. And... Um, so the the answer is uh, twenty magnets will uh, stick will allow you to stick your son to uh, uh, a, a steel uh, shipping container. So, folks, if you've got a bunch of hard drives, I think there's a whole uh, uh, there could be a whole cottage culture on this whole thing. If you go to Etsy and create these coats for children, because I know there are plenty of parents out there who want to just take. I'm thinking about my two year old. Like, huh? Maybe I could I could easily. Tell him to stay in one location. It'd be like the timeout jacket. Yeah, just- actually, many people said, hey, this would be a great way to have, you know, timeout for your kid. Just lift him up and stick him against the wall. They might try to get, get timeouts because it's so much fun. <laughs> so I got a nice note from a listener of ours who specifically said, I want, I want you to read this on security now, Steve. This is, uh, he, they, the, the subject was YASS, Y-A-S-S-S. Yet another Spinrite success story uh, from Christian Alexandrov, who's in Sofia City, Bulgaria. He said, hi, Steve and Leo. I want to share this story with Security Now listeners and viewers. Usually I use Spinrite to help other people. This time I needed Spinrite to help me. This time Spinrite pulled my butt out of the fire, he wrote. Thanks to you, Steve. I have a lot of RAM. I thought, okay. He said, a friend of mine was over, and we were having fun with my PC. Suddenly, the PC froze. And seconds after, we got the BSOD, the infamous blue screen of death. He says, I rebooted the PC. It did not boot. It gave me the BSOD saying, unmountable boot volume. Whoops. Oh, geez. He challenged me, saying that if I fix it, Without the PC leaving the room, he will give me a brand new kit of 16 gig of RAM, four modules, four gigabytes each, Kingston DDR3, 133 megahertz RAM with eight-year warranty. (laughs) He says, if I lose the bet, I lose my PC. So Christian writes, bad bet. My butt was on fire (laughs) because of the chance of losing my PC. My files, I have three redundant backups, updated every Sunday, all on various media, one off-site. I can get my data anytime, anyplace. Hard disks fail. This is why I have backups, but this is also why I have Spinrite. I took my case with CDs 
and booted the Spinrite 6 CD. I saw him worried. He was worried while looking at Spinrite's progress, and his worry increased when he saw Dynastat window popping out while Spinrite chews on a sector. After two hours of chewing, Spinrite gave me the green R icon, fully recovering the sector, and quickly processed the rest of the hard drive. After Spinrite finished the task, I rebooted the PC. While the PC was booting successfully and fast to desktop, I was unpacking my new RAM. He asked me why I unpacked the RAM. I said, this was the bet. While he verified that all works fine now, he just said, okay, fine, have it, it's yours. He left disappointed, and I left with a lot of RAM. Thank you, Steve, for this incredible program, and thank you, Steve and Leo, for this great podcast, in this case, IAS. I wish best of luck to GRC.com and Twit.tv from a happy Spinrite user. So, Christian, thanks for sharing your story. You don't get a cut of that, Steve. Do you get like two gigs of RAM to send to you because you, you use one of your programs, kind of that Apple model of, hey, you use my thing. Give me a piece. Actually, the fact that I can share the story is all the reward I need. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. And, you know, the the, the, the fellow sending that Spinrite uh, message wanted to talk to Leo. Maybe you want to talk to Leo right now. What would he ah. say if he was here? Thank you, Ayaz. We'll be right back with more security now in a moment. But I want to tell you a little bit about Carbonite online backup if you're looking for a way to back up your data i've i would submit there's a couple of things you ought to think about three really uh it should be automatic because if you have to remember to do it well, you're gonna forget and stuff's not gonna get backed up and sure as shooting uh, the hard drive's gonna die you're gonna lose the computer they're gonna how's it gonna burn down it, you're gonna have a problem the day you forget to back up right or perhaps Perhaps you want something that's not only automatic, but continuous. That way you make a change to a file. It's not, you know, a whole week to your next backup before you're you're safe. Uh, it's no good to, you know, make a change and then lose the hard drive a week later. So I would suggest automatic, continuous. But the most important, and Steve will back me up on this, is to get it out of the house, off-site. That's where Carbonite really excels. It's off-site cloud storage for everything on a, an individual computer for $59 a year. Less than five bucks a month. Uh, Carbonite also has plans for small businesses uh, that'll back up all your computers, all your servers, your external hard drives. Again, for one low flat annual fee, unlimited data. You don't have to worry ahead of time how much is going to cost me. You know. And it's affordable. It's very. $59 a year per computer. Even less for the business accounts. Uh, after you have a disaster, so easy to restore. But you don't have to wait for a disaster because your stuff is available at all times. On any computer, just log into your Carbonite account or on your smartphone or tablet with their free apps. You can even email a file right from Car right from the Carbonite app. I mean, it's so sweet. Carbonite.com, unlimited backup for your PC or Mac, $59 a year. You could try it free right now for two weeks. Just go to Carbonite.com, no credit card required. We know you'll love Carbonite. Make sure you use our offer code security now when you purchase so you get those two bonus months for free. Now, let's get back, my friends, to uh, Security Now, Iaz and Steve. Go ahead, guys. <laughs> All right, Steve, what's up next? We got uh, Facebook monetization. Is that right? Yeah. Um, the EFF, our friends who are really doing a great job of watching our back, the Electronic Free, uh, Foundation. Wait. the, the uh, Electronic Frontier Foundation? Frontier. I can never get that right. Yes. It, it, yeah, Frontier Foundation. Electronic Frontier Foundation. 
um, whose subtitle is Defending Our Rights in the Digital World, they they put out a a really nicely um, assembled exposition uh, that was titled The Disconcerting Details, How Facebook Teams Up with Data Brokers to Show Targeted Ads. Um, and I thought this was just... It's it's such infor- it's such good information with enough technical meat that I thought it would be a, an interesting topic for the podcast to to give people sort of a look into in, into how Facebook interacts with third party data brokers and and we'll we'll dis- we'll describe what those are um, and it's not all bad news you know I, I I studied what they wrote and I'm 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 not horrified by what's Facebook. <laughs> There's a glowing <laughs> endorsement. It's going to be on the front page of Facebook. Uh, I'm not, not horrified, Steve Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> um, and normally I am horrified by these sorts of things. I'm not horrified in this case because, you know, Facebook, of course, is massive with, you know, everybody now um, who's who's active in social networking circles it's like, you know, I mean, and you even see see corporations saying, you know, go to our Facebook page. I was watching some little video about some wacky new car that gets 65 miles per gallon on the freeway and, and they're hoping to get off the ground. And they didn't say, you know, go to our website. They said, go to our Facebook page. And I was like, well, okay, this has obviously happened. The point is that that Facebook has already been under scrutiny so we know that they're going to go to some efforts to protect the privacy of their users. And we know that that organizations like the EFF are going to be watching them closely, uh, as are others. So they're trying to figure out how they can monetize their service while at the same time protecting the privacy of their users. So what I want to do is share this page with people and we'll stop from from time to time and discuss what we learn as we go along i as so um so it starts saying recently we published a blog post that described how to opt out of seeing ads on facebook targeted to you based on your okay now this is critical how to opt out of seeing ads on facebook Targeted to you based on your offline activities. So think about that for a minute. That means that it's not things you do online, but it's that your your offline persona in the real world somehow is known to Facebook and or Facebook advertisers so that that's where the targeting happens. This post explained where these companies get their data, what information they share with Facebook, or what this means for your privacy. So get ready for the nitty-gritty details. Who has your information, how they get it, and what they do with it. It's a lot of information, so we've organized it into a FAQ for an FAQ for convenience. So they... so. The EFF poses this question, what are data brokers and how do they get my information? EFF answers the question, data brokers are companies that trade information in people 
Oh, I'm that trade in. That, oh, sorry, <laughs> data brokers are companies that trade in information on people, names, addresses, phone numbers, details of shopping habits, and personal data such as whether someone owns cats or whether or or is divorced. This information comes from easily accessible public data, such as data from the phone book, as well as from less accessible sources, sources such as when the, yes, the Division of Motor Vehicles sells information like your name, address, and the type of car you own. As Natasha Singer of the New York Times described in her portrait of data broker Axiom, and that's what this, they stuck a C in there, A-C-X-I-O-M last year, quote, uh, quoting the New York Times article, if you are an American adult, the odds are that this Axiom Corporation knows things like your age, race, sex, weight, height, marital status, education level, politics, buying habits, habits, household health worries, vacation dreams, and on and on. Data brokers make money by selling access to this information. So, so data brokers, their business is to build databases on actual people, on real-world physical people. And so their whole economic model is to make money selling access to that. They have all this organized and and online and accessible in some means. This is interesting. Some so com- these guys stand right in the middle between the DMV, I guess, and Facebook, something like that. Well, we, well, we did have we covered some time ago. I think it was in Florida, um, the, uh, an instance of the of the DMV being caught essentially making revenue selling this arguably private government database information for money to third-party data brokers, to these sorts of organizations. Mm-hmm. So, they, so uh, the article continues, some companies deal specifically with regulated business purposes, such as helping employers run background checks on job applicants, other data brokers sell or rent the data for marketing purposes. But details about where these companies get all of their data are still fuzzy. Representative Edward Markey and Representative Joe Barton, uh, one a Democrat, one a Republican, and six other lawmakers sent open letters to data brokers last year demanding answers about their business practices. The letters asked the companies to, quote, provide a list of each entity, including private sources and government agencies and offices that has provided data from or about consumers to you, unquote. The companies gave vague responses, for example, which and I would call these non-responses. Basically, they said none of your business. Uh, for example, in its 30-page response, Axiom, the company we were describing before, stated, quote, This question calls for Axiom to provide information that would reveal business practices that are of a highly competitive nature. Axiom cannot provide a list of each entity 
that has provided data from or about consumers to us. So basically, they're refusing. Congress says, you know, what are you collecting? And the commercial organization says, we're not going to tell you. The FTC has since opened an inquiry into data brokers because of concerns over privacy. So then the next question in this FAQ is, is there a government surveillance aspect to this? To which EFF says, there are government surveillance relationships to both data brokers and social networking sites that users should know. Many data brokers work closely with the government. For example, the FBI has been paying Atlanta-based ChoicePoint for access to its extensive database in order to screen for terrorist threats and for other purposes. And Axiom worked with authorities after September 11th to track down 11 of the 19 hijackers and then continued to provide assistance to government agencies such as the TSA. We also know that the government looks to Facebook and other social media sites for a range of purposes, both for criminal investigations and much more. EFF and the Samuelson Law Clinic at UC Berkeley School of Law filed suit in December 2009 against a half dozen government agencies for refusing to disclose their policies for using social networking sites. We found lots of evidence of the U.S. government using social media sites for data gathering, including that the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services uses social media sites to evaluate citizenship requests, and that the Internal Revenue Service is poking around social networking sites to investigate taxpayers, and that the DEA is looking at social graphs of connected friends in order to map out associates of those sought in investigations. So it's, 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 I guess this says that, you know, the government and the investigative arms of the government are not ignorant of and blind to the vast amount of information. I mean, I know that there's been lots of discussion about just how, especially the, you know, the younger generation just pours all of this information about their life into Facebook. And, and they're doing it just to, to share and to be connected and, and so forth. But, you know, all of the social graphs that can be generated from that are being data mined um, for purposes that the people sharing the information probably didn't intend. I mean, if they're publishing the stuff online and putting it out there publicly, uh, they're probably not thinking of the repercussions, like mining this data. Because I'm just thinking this data to a lot of people is just in a vacuum. There's just their own information out there. They're not realizing that everything is linked together. Like when you yes. click your friends or you're clicking your interests or whatever it may be, it's creating this image of you. And the fact that uh, the, these government agencies get the information from the social networks without even breaking any laws. It's very simple. If it's public, well, they can yes. it. And we also know that, for example, employers have started to use the all of the the accounts that that prospective employees have, you know, in order to do background research on on individuals when they're considering them for employment. So now the question, what information is flowing between data brokers and Facebook? 
EFF answers. Facebook's new ad targeting program works with four data brokers. Axiom, who we've been discussing, Data Logics, L-O-G-I-X, Epsilon, and Blue Kai, K-A-I. Companies who want to advertise on Facebook can use the data. Now, so, so we've got three entities. We have companies who want to advertise and Facebook, and then these data aggregators who know about people in the real world. So companies who want to advertise on Facebook can use the data controlled by these data brokers to build custom groups and then show those groups targeted ads on Facebook. Certain technical steps, as well as Facebook policies, limit how much identifiable information flows between the data brokers and Facebook. Facebook did not explain the details in its recent note, saying only, quote, the process is designed, <coughs> excuse me, so that no personal information is exchanged between Facebook and marketers or the third parties whose market, those marketers work with. A slightly more detailed, if somewhat outdated explanation can be found in its description of Facebook exchange. Here's how, the, how it works in practice. For Axiom, Epsilon, and Data Logics. So the first three of these four data brokers, leaving Blue Kai out for treatment in a second. Under the new program, a company can approach a data broker, say Axiom, and ask for a particular audience list. For example, a list of people interested in buying family cars. Now, it's a little creepy, maybe, that Axiom can actually answer that question. You know, it's like, give me a list of all the people interested in buying family cars. Wow. Anyway, but apparently that's what Axiom can do. Axiom then would create a list of email addresses for everyone in their database interested in buying family cars. So Axiom knows all of these people and has their email addresses. Axiom generates cryptographic hashes of those email addresses and sends those hashes to Facebook. So, and this is why, as I said, I'm less than horrified. I mean, there's still a lot, there's a lot of about us that is known by these organizations, but there are nice barriers, there are walls that have been built to provide some protection. So, Axiom generates a population that fits a certain demographic that an advertiser wants, pull, collects all the email addresses and hashes them, and provides Facebook with the hashes. Facebook, in turn, creates cryptographic hashes of the email address of every Facebook user. Okay, so, so Facebook maintains hashes of all of their users' email addresses. Wherever the hashes Facebook creates match the hashes Axiom created, Facebook identifies that user as part of the target group. Any hashes that don't match 
are discarded, not used to form the audience. In this way, Facebook doesn't collect a list of email addresses of people who don't have accounts on Facebook. So that's a good point. So Facebook is, I mean, notice that Facebook does know who these users are because they have, they, they have the user accounts, they've got the user's email address, and they've got a hash of the email address. But so, but, but, in, but the idea is that Axiom will have, you know, like in sort of in terms of like a Venn diagram, Axiom will also have lots of other email addresses that Facebook knows nothing about. And so these will be, but so by both of them performing a hash of the email address, all they can do is say, oh, look, we know the email address and you know the email address. That's the only way the hashes can match. So no one is getting information about the other's email addresses that are not an overlap outside of the, you know, the Venn diagram overlap. This, I mean, this sounds, like, like you were saying, not horrible. It does sound it's, a bit sleazy. It, well, yeah. I mean, but, you know, we're going to be monetized. So this is how they're doing it. So any hashes that don't match are discarded, not used to form the audience. In this way, Facebook doesn't collect a list of email addresses of people who don't have accounts on Facebook. And, of course, similarly, Axiom gets no email addresses from Facebook either. Of course, it might be possible for Facebook and it's more than might be possible, it absolutely is possible for Facebook to recover the email addresses using something like a brute force attack. Well, it's not necessary because Facebook created the hash in the first place and they know what hash is associated with which email address. And they and say, however, the company has a policy against engaging in such an attack. Well, if their policy says we won't brute force, that's useless because they don't need to brute force. As we just said, they created the hash so they know what's on the other side. The company that, now, continuing, the company that first requested the ad will then provide Facebook with a specific advertisement, for example, for, for example a family car advertisement, and Facebook will display the ad to the group that was created with Axiom's data, that is, that data in the intersection of the Venn diagram. So what this achieves is you're a Facebook user and even though none of your online behavior is it is it indicative of an intent to purchase a car by magic you're getting new car ads because some other company has been tracking you in other ways that they don't disclose to anyone including the government and they know that about you and so they're able to arrange to show you an ad on Facebook that relates to something going on in your in your you know offline physical world. Facebook will will likely be able to glean certain information about the user based on what is being advertised obviously. For example, ads showing baby clothes might indicate the individual has or is expecting young children. Regardless of what the face of what um, the Facebook user posted on her profile or relating to young kids, Facebook will also know whether the individual interacted 
with the advertisement, which is a good point. Facebook knows if you, you know, click on the ad or do whatever the ad wants. Facebook then provides the company with an aggregate report about how its ad performed, obviously when shown to this tar- target audience, which might include information about how many people clicked on it, their locations, ages, genders, etc. Again, I'm sure anonymous, but still, you know, demographic profile of, of you know, to close that feedback loop because certainly Facebook has that information. While Facebook may be taking steps to limit identifiable data flowing back to the data brokers, and I would agree they are, the result for users could be eerie. Users might find themselves seeing advertisements that are based on actions they took in the real world, as well as personal facts about their life and circumstances that they've been careful not to put on Facebook. And then talking about just this fourth of the, the, the fourth of the four data brokers that Facebook is known to be working with is Blue Kai. Well, before we delve into that fourth yeah. one, shall we, shall we yeah. hear our final message from Leo Laporte? Uh, mm. Thank you. Uh, I asked briefly, just want to just step in for a moment to mention audible.com. Audible.com, you know me. I love Audible. Listen to Audible all the time. I started uh, in 2000. It's now been 11, 12, 13 years <laughs> yes, since I started are. listening to audible.com. I've got over 500 books in my library that, by the way, I can listen to at any time. They have more than 100,000 titles now, uh, all kinds of literature, including the best science fiction. All the Honor, Honor Harrington uh, novels are on there. Uh, okay. Jerry Pornell's stuff Larry with Larry Niven. Um, Isaac Asimov. Also brand new sci-fi. There's nonfiction too. Fiction as well. Just came out from the guy who did uh, The Kite Runner, uh, Khalid Hosseini's And the Mountains Echoed. It uh, actually not just come out. It's coming out uh, on May 21st. But they will have it. This is one of the things I love about Audible. Publishers understand now we want audiobooks. And Audible gets all the new books, all the bestsellers, day and date of the release of the book. And that's awesome. awesome. So I want you to check out Khalid Hosseini's And the Mountains Echoed. Coming out May 21st, we mentioned, uh, gosh, I mentioned so many great books on Audible, but Dan Brown's uh, sequel to The Da Vinci Code just came out. Uh, so many, you know what? Go to audible.com, browse around, take a look, pick a book, download it for free when you go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. We're going to give you your first book free. You'll sign up for the gold account. That's the book a month subscription. By the way, subscriptions are great because you also get your choice of the Daily New York Times or Wall Street Journal read to you. Love that. <laughs> get get signed up for that gold account. Your first month's free. Your first credit's free. You can cancel any time in the first 30 days. Pay nothing. But that book will be yours to keep for the rest of your life. Try it on the uh, new iPhone, Windows phone, and Android phone. They've got that. Be- the apps have been updated. They're beautiful. iPad, uh, Windows 8 as well. Just spectacular. Audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now that first book's waiting for you. At Audible. Give it a try today. Now, back to Steve and Ayaz and Security Now. Thank you, Leo. So how does, how does this fourth company differ from the other three we were talking about? Uh, well, so they're, still, they're also in the business of aggregating information and selling their databases to Facebook and, of course, other companies as well. So this is Blue Kai, B-L-U-E-K-A-I. And we've heard about them before. They've been around. But for Blue Kai, it's an entirely different process. Specifically, Blue Kai, and I'm again reading from the EFF's great posting about this, places tracking cookies on an individual's computer and uses those cookies to collect information 
about what pages that person visits. So this is old school, traditional, doubleclick.net style uh, tracking cookies. So Blue Kai has, that means Blue Kai has relationships with other websites all over the internet who have agreed to to put a, you know, like a, a web beacon, a pixel, essentially, that refers to a Blue Kai server. Um, and that will carry a cookie, which is uniform for a given user and allow Blue Kai to track the user's movement across the Internet. So this is the whole third-party cookie problem that that's, that's well understood. Um, uh, continuing from the EFF says, um, in order to show, so Blue Kai uses those cookies to collect information about what pages the person visits in order to show targeted advertisements. Blue Kai shouldn't have any email addresses to share with Facebook and says, parens, in its privacy policy, Blue Kai says that it is working to build a comprehensive online database with, quote, utmost attention and diligence to ensuring your anonymity and privacy, unquote. Uh-huh. In this case, Facebook is using a process called cookie matching. Here's how it works. Companies will start by approaching Blue Kai and asking it to show an advertisement to individuals. Um, okay, so... Blue Kai is an advertiser in addition to a data aggregator, whereas the first three we talked about are only brokers. They sell the information, and that allows a, an, a, an advertiser to, to have the ad placed on Facebook using to, to the demographic overlap that was obtained from the broker. Blue Kai is an advertiser in the same way that DoubleClick is and so it's Blue Kai's ads which are scattered all over the internet, which is allowing them to track individuals. So, um, here's how cookie matching works companies will start by approaching Blue Kai and asking it to show advertisements to individuals who, for example, visited the websites of hotels in San Francisco. When an individual logs into Facebook, Facebook uses an HTML pixel web bug with an HTTP redirect to allow Facebook and Blue Kai to process the tracking cookies they have set on the user's computer. If a Blue Kai tracking cookie is in place, the cookie will be used to look up what sort of sites were recently visited what interests are associated with that account, and what kind of purchases Blue Kai believes the user might be planning to make. Blue Kai will then communicate to Facebook which audience to place the user in. The company that originally requested the ads will provide the advertisement to Facebook. Okay, so essentially what's happening is Blue Kai in this instance, is not an advertiser on Facebook, yet they need a way of, of being a third-party cookie to Facebook's user. So Facebook hosts 
a blue Kai pixel, which which serves to allow blue Kai to to obtain the information. This HTTP redirect that that's a means for Facebook to communicate to blue Kai and then and then back to Facebook to get this this information from blue Kai, which then blue Kai uses to tie tie to all of the other websites that this this Facebook user has visited. So that's sort of that's the that's the means of of breaching uh, otherwise some separate spheres that that you know there there will be no communication between. So this is you know deliberate on Facebook's part in order to link the information and then um uh, the advertiser provides the ad to Facebook, and then uh, and then it um, it inserts it on the pages of those users that Blue Kai says uh, it would be uh, relevant to. So as before, Facebook f- provides the company with an aggregate report about how an ad performed, which might include information about how many people clicked on it, their locations, ages, genders, etc. And as with the other data brokers. Facebook would likely be able to glean certain information about the user based on what is being advertised if it chose to look. And we really don't know one way or the other whether Facebook cares. The end result for users is still somewhat disquieting. Websites you visited when you are not logged into Facebook will be used as the basis for showing advertisements on Facebook. This will happen whether you're logged into Facebook or not, and regardless of whether you consent to tracking or not. So then the EFF asks, what does opting out mean? In our prior post, EFF writes, we emphasized that the only way for individuals to get out of this program was to opt out. This means individually opting out on each of the data aggregators' websites of these affiliated data brokers. And EFF writes a Byzantine multi-step process. It also means that you will need to learn careful self-defense to protect yourself from Blue Kai tracking you around the web. We recommend you use a tool such as Ghostery, now available on Firefox, Safari, Chrome, Opera, and IE, or uh, Abine's Do Not Track Me, available in Firefox, Safari, Chrome, and IE, or, and frankly, this is what I use, Adblock Plus with easy privacy lists, which I find to be wonderful. See more comprehensive instructions in our four simple changes to stop online tracking uh, posting, they say. Note that opting out of data brokers doesn't mean your data is actually removed from their lists. Instead, it just means your data is suppressed and hopefully won't be included in the data sent to Facebook. Please note also that going through the complex process of opting out of Axiom, Dialogics, and Epsilon, as well as using a cookie blocking tool to ward off Blue Kai's trackers, may not be enough to protect your privacy from this targeted advertising program. There's nothing to prevent Facebook from engaging another data broker in this program in the future, in which case you'd have to opt out of that data broker as well. 
You could attempt to opt out of every data broker, meaning on the Internet. Uh, they say, but this is a Sisyphean task. It would be hard or potentially impossible to know if you manage to opt out of every single existing data broker and quite difficult to know if those data brokers ever refreshed their data sets and added you back in. Furthermore, some data brokers may not offer any form of opt-out. And even if you manage to get out of all the existing data brokers, newly formed brokers could always appear and list your information. So finally, they say, does Facebook have standards for companies who want to work for them? And the answer, which is refreshing, is yes. And it just made those standards public. It's good that Facebook published a note explaining some of the minimum standards data brokers must achieve in order to work with Facebook, although some of those standards are inadequate. Here's what Facebook said. Inline transparency. Users will be able to navigate using a drop-down menu to arrive at a page that identifies the company that was responsible for including them in the audience for the ad, which is fantastic. I want to see that. Facebook will also provide a centralized list of the third parties third parties data brokers of the third party data brokers participating in the program. Control, control over ad display. A user will be able to ask Facebook not to show a particular ad again or not to show any ads from that company. Participating companies must also provide on their about this ad page with an op participating companies must also provide on their about this ad page an opt out of future targeting by that company. But Steve, doesn't by by opting out and doing these measures, doesn't that give Facebook more information about the ads you want to see and not see? Well, I mean, I, I guess I like the fact that, I mean, this is arduous. That's the problem is all of this is opt out rather than opt in. Mm -hmm. But that's the way it's going to be. I don't think we're ever going to see did this become an opt in process. Um, although the EFF would certainly like to see that. So, yeah, you are. You're right. By certainly by any interaction, you're providing Facebook with with more information about yourself. Um, it may just be I, I mean, I guess I guess Facebook must be saying to users, look, if this ad upsets you some for some reason like i mean arg arguably there's some invasion of privacy here i mean because things you do in the real world are now being brought into facebook and facebook knows what ads you are being shown so in in that process your you know information is being disclosed about you to facebook by virtue of what ad you know what group you are now part of so, so this is Facebook clearly trying to minimize that somewhat after the fact, unfortunately. If you say, I never want to see that kind of ad again, then they're giving you some control over that, over essentially, you know, the upset that, this, that, this, that the presentation of this ad, which well could surprise people, um, could be creating by saying, okay, you know, don't worry, you'll never see that ad again. And as you say, they are getting some information about their user. Uh, EFF says enhanced disclosures is also part of what Facebook is has publicly said they're going to require. 
Companies participating in the programs are supposed to expand their public knowledge centers so users can learn how data is collected and used. Well, okay, they're not telling the federal government when when our congressman asks, so I guess we can hope they're going to tell random end users when we go to their websites. Uh, Good luck on that. This includes explaining what types of information they collect and general information on what their policies are relating to the sharing of that data and data access tools. Facebook stated that each of its partners quote, is working to develop, unquote, uh-huh, <laughs> tools that will help people see audience segment information that the partner has associated with them. That'll be a little disquieting. The tools are also supposed to let users exercise control over, over that data. We saw the first example of this with Axiom, which recently announced... It would allow users the ability to access information about what categories of data are associated with them and make updates to those categories. So the EFF says, we think this is a good start, though we'd like to see stronger standards, such as augmenting these Byzantine opt-out systems with respect to the clear do-not-track opt-out signal with a commitment to allow users to know what data a company has on them and what other entities have re- and what other entities have received that data but publishing public standards was a big first step in the right direction by creating a public policy for the minimum privacy standards companies must meet in order to work with it facebook incentivizes up-and-coming data brokers to improve their privacy practices in the hopes of one day earning a contract with Facebook. And here, here, I completely agree with all of that. This is why it's like, okay, these are, these are good things. And clearly Facebook is recognizing that in order for, you know, they need to be perceived as not being a, an abuser of all the information, which you know they're now aggregating and and collecting and and maintaining on the on their subscribers. Yeah, with all the stories of Facebook and privacy concerns, uh, the idea that Facebook would never want to lose a user. The the fact is they're collecting this data that people voluntarily give them, and if they have to deal with any bad press about dealing with companies that are uh, monitoring your offline life, they're going to do their best to make sure that uh, people believe that they can trust in Facebook. You know, and and we're all yeah, we're also seeing a trend in this direction. Look at some of the things we just learned that Google is doing. You know, like analyzing all of the photos you took during a vacation and finding, I mean, like literally doing photo analysis to spot the Eiffel Tower and to spot specific you know monuments and points of interest and recognizing those. You know, that all goes into metadata about you. That's amazing. So, so we are really seeing, you know, deeper levels of data mining happening as the, as the means for these companies to, uh, to offer services that that they think are valuable and of course, monetize (laughs) their user bases as well. So, uh, EFF asks, will Facebook show me targeted ads on sites other than Facebook? And the answer is right now. 
Facebook displays ads when users are on Facebook or sometimes when users are using Zynga and logged into Facebook. However, Facebook has reserved the right to show advertisements to users when they are not on Facebook. So all of this technology could follow you away from Facebook and, um, and you know, create a longer reach, essentially, for Facebook. Furthermore, Facebook is currently ignoring the do not track signal. So while we are urging individuals to turn it on, just turning it on is not yet enough to get this to get out of this targeted advertising program. And finally, what should Facebook be doing differently? There's a lot Facebook should be doing differently, says the EFF, when it comes to this new targeted advertisement program, such as stopping the program. <laughs> okay, good luck with that, EFF. Uh, number two, making the program opt-in instead of opt-out. We know that's never going to happen. Um, all, or, short of doing these things, Facebook has many ways it could address the privacy concerns of users. Here are a few suggestions. One, respect do not track. Facebook and data brokers should respect user wishes by committing to respect do not track. This means not tracking users who transmit the DNT colon one signal, which is a browser header we've talked about often on this podcast, and interpreting that signal as an effective opt-out of this targeted advertising program. Two, Facebook could use its market power to prompt participating data brokers to improve their practices. That's certainly true. While Facebook doesn't have ultimate control over how these data brokers operate, it does have an extremely powerful role to play in the data economy. Through negotiating its contract with data brokers, it can insist that these companies meet basic standards for respecting the privacy choices of users. For example, Facebook could require that all data brokers it works with provide users with a way of accessing their profiles and correcting inaccuracies and should ensure that a do not track setting in the user's browser corresponds to opting, opting out from tracking by that data broker. Facebook could also require each data broker to commit to not using data collected during the opt-out process, which is sort of what you were referring to before, Iaz, for unrelated activities and to discard all unnecessary data once the opt-out is complete. And finally, number three, Facebook and data brokers could work together to create a single opt-out process. Anyone who is trying to opt out of this new targeted advertising program will see how complex it is. Users should not need to follow a complex process in order to opt out. And Facebook should use its place in the market to push for improvements. Facebook could set an important floor that could incentivize up-and-coming data brokers to improve their privacy practices in the hopes of one day earning a contract with Facebook, which is a bit of a repeat of the text above. Face, uh, data brokers who are keen to prove themselves capable of self-regulation 
should welcome this major step forward for transparency and choice. In March of 2012, so a little over a year ago, the Federal Trade Commission released its final report on digital consumer privacy issues, which included a recommendation that the data broker industry create a central website that would explain the access rights and other options, for example, opt-out choices, available to consumers, and which would provide links to exercise these choices. EFF applauded this move, but wished that the industry would go one step further and provide users with a single website through which users can opt out of having their data listed by any online data broker. So a central clearinghouse, essentially, you know, the, like the, the, the single do not call list that, that we've had for telemarketers. Now is the time, says EFF, to make that a reality. Facebook could easily ask that companies who want to engage with them in showing advertisements agree to coordinate on such a hub website. Notably, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse has already gotten things started with its online data vendors list. Unfortunately for now, the only advice we have for users is try to opt out of everything and stay vigilant. So... I'm glad we had the EFF there. They, they pull this sort of information together uh, and they, uh, I mean, you know, knowledge is power. And so understanding what's going on and, and, you know, helping to, to, to publicize how this kind of tracking works is, uh, is super useful. I think people will be just shocked to know that there's all this offline data collection at all. The fact that these yeah. exist and then there's no actual statements by these companies how they're doing this. And then that's a link to your online life. Uh, the, uh-huh. the fact that EFF is, is shining a light on it is fantastic. Although I'm very curious if we'll ever get something as, as easy as a one-site uh, opt-out process. That'd be amazing. But then again, the do not call list sounds insane, but it does exist. So maybe yeah. there's a chance. And. What I think we're going to be seeing, I, I, I mean, now all the browsers support do not track. The detractors say, yes, but it's, op- it's optional. No one has to abide by it, et cetera. Well, yes, but it's, it's a chicken and egg. We, you, know, you couldn't have legislation requiring its honoring until the browsers made it available. And, you know, there was that kerfuffle briefly about Apache not honoring it because uh, there was, you know, one particular developer had a had a bug about uh, Microsoft's IE10. He felt was like turning it on by default, even though, in fact, anyone setting up IE10 does see that as, you know, as and it's well explained, like what this means. Now that the browsers all have it, we might see some movement in Congress to simply require that it be honored if it's turned on. And ultimately, I think that's what we're going to get. Well, that was quite the educational episode of Security <laughs> Now. Every episode of Security Now is like this. It's just it's explained to you simply, if I can understand it. I'm sure you guys are following along just fine. Thanks to Steve. Steve, where can find pe- people find you on the web? Like maybe grc.com? GRC.com. And uh, next week we will have a Q&A episode. Uh, and so our listeners pretty much probably have it pounded into their brain by now, but we are always getting new people. So GRC.com slash feedback. You can go there uh, to that page and uh, and send me a question about this or 
Anything else that's on your mind? Uh, I go through the mailbag just before the podcast and pull out questions. And uh, I imagine Leo will be back next week. So we'll uh, we'll go over that then. He ought to be. Now, at GRC.com, you actually have transcripts of each episode of Security Now. That's right, right? Right. As soon as you guys get this thing posted, I grab it and uh, squeeze it down to our 16K version. I also have an archive of every podcast we've ever done, all 403. This one is 404. Um, Elaine has a satellite link because she's somewhere out in the boonies. uh, And uh, so she is one of these bandwidth-constrained people that Leo talks about when he talks about our 16-kilobit version. So I immediately get that uh, uploaded to GRC, and Elaine grabs that one to conserve her bandwidth and then does a transcription of the episode, which I typically post uh, the next evening or sometimes Friday morning early uh, if if Elaine ends up being up too late uh, for me to get it that night. So You can also find show notes at twit.tv slash SN. And normally we do the show on Wednesday at 11 a.m. Today was a special occasion because Google had their I.O. presentation pushing the show a little late. And Leo should be back next week. Thank you so much, Steve. Hey, IS, thanks for uh, standing in. It was great. We'll see everybody next week. Security now.